From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Chick-fil-A announced it will be closing its first U.K. store just eight days after opening. Its landlord in Reading, England, says it will not renew the Atlanta-based company's lease. This after pressure from local LGBT groups protesting the chain's record on same-sex marriage rights. Chick-fil-A, Nike, Amazon, and SoulCycle have all been targets of boycotts that spread faster on social media than you can down an order of waffle fries. Well, we're looking into whether corporate boycotts actually change behavior or affect the bottom line with Kate Taylor. She follows the food and beverage industry and retail for, Bev- for Business Insider, and she's on the line with us from New York City. Kate, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. James Hamblin is also with us. He covers health and the health industry as staff writer for The Atlantic, connecting with us on Skype. James, hello. Good morning. All right. So Chick-fil-A's first store in Reading is set to close when its six-month lease ends. Kate, is it clear how much of a role pressure from protest groups played in this decision? It's hard to say exactly because on one hand, Chick-fil-A can kind of say this was going to be a test location. Maybe they weren't planning on definitely having it for more than six months, but I think that the backlash definitely played a role. I've talked to a lot of experts about Chick-fil-A, and international expansion is one of the only ways that boycotts and bad press about kind of the chain's history has actually impacted Chick-fil-A. What do you mean? What's happening internationally that maybe isn't happening here at home? So at the beginning of this year, Chick-fil-A only had locations in the U.S. They opened its first locations in Canada this year, and then there's this expansion in the UK. We've seen Chick-fil-A sales in the U.S. have only increased when there's bad press here. However, for landlords, kind of as individuals, when they face this kind of backlash or criticism from their local community, there's a greater chance that they will pull out and, as we've seen in the UK, decide not to renew a lease. In a statement to the Washington Post, Chick-fil-A said it was pleased with the customer response to the Reading store. What do we know about how the response has been locally? It looks like the sales have been fine at this location. I mean, that's something you see again and again with Chick-fil-A. Customers will go and sales are very consistently good. And even in areas like New York City, where originally there was backlash about expanding here, they've seen incredible sales numbers. Um, So honestly, in terms of backlash, you have to see a landlord or an individual responding to criticism less than seeing customers actually stop going to Chick-fil-A. Okay, so a little background here. This all kicked off in 2012 when CEO Dan Cathy made statements to Christian news outlets opposing same-sex marriage, prompted calls for boycotts. There were kiss-ins at Chick-fil-A restaurants across the U.S. Now, James, you've covered uh, consumer boycotts, a number of them, and counter-boycotts. In general, are they effective at hitting bottom lines? Very rarely. Sometimes you see a temporary effect, um, but not enough to have a company change practices because often you don't have an organized base of protesters that have specific demands and specific goals for how to impact the company in a way that will achieve those demands. Well, Kathy's comments did come before the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage legal. There were boycotts and counter boycotts across the country and a lot of press coverage. Kate, you said that that actually didn't impact Chick-fil-A's business. No, since 2012, Chick-fil-A has seen incredible growth. So in 2012, they were kind of four and a half billion in annual sales in the U.S. year. Now they're above 10 billion. So it's they've really only grown since they started seeing bad press and uh, pushback. Of course, Chick-fil-A has changed its 
donation policies. They aren't donating to a lot of the more controversial groups that they donated to in the past. So you've seen some change from Chick-fil-A, but you've also seen incredible growth from them. Who were the companies that were in question? So at that time, Chick-fil-A was donating to a lot of Christian right-wing organizations that uh, have ties to anti-LGBTQ legislation in the U.S., but also in other countries. So since then, they've kind of cut all of those ties, and the only two really controversial charities that Chick-fil-A continues to donate to are the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and the Salvation Army. Well, we know that mayors in Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, all said at the time Chick-fil-A is not welcome in our city. Now there are stores in Chicago, in Brooklyn, as you mentioned, and plans for Boston. I can tell you anecdotally that I know a lot of LGBTQ people who go to Chick-fil-A. So, James, what is the challenge of sustaining these kind of boycotts over time? Well, it usually has to do with having an organized base of protesters who can keep people on target and pressure apply pressure to the points where the company has weaknesses. So if you just kind of put out a broad call on social media for people to consume less of that company's product, you're not being as strategic as you could be with a smaller protest that was at, say, their um, most profitable locations during their most profitable hours, or say applying pressure to a, a, an owner or a landlord, um, or someone who would be in a position to actually make a decision that could achieve the outcome that the protest group wants. And then being clear about your demands so that the company doesn't feel just simply under attack, mm-hmm. like people don't want it to exist. But like, if you do this thing that we're asking for, everything will be okay, or at least you can continue to exist as a company. James Hamblin there, he's staff writer at The Atlantic. Also with me, Kate Taylor covers Chick-fil-A, among other things, for Business Insider. And we're talking about the power of the consumer and the consumer boycott and whether they really instigate corporate change and changes in behavior. Well, James, you mentioned social media. There are many calls to boycott that start on social media. This is something often dismissed as slacktivism. Can you help us define that and how social media actually impacts the drive for activism. Selectivism is the concept, the idea that when you feel there's an injustice, you have a sort of itch and you need to scratch it by doing something. And you might actually take to the streets or boycott. But if you can instead post on social media, that's a way that you can scratch that itch without actually necessarily making taking those steps, you know, say continuing to go to the place that you think is doing wrong while just posting about it being bad. Um, there's some evidence in, in some research that that is not effective. But then at the same time, there are also when you have public behaviors, public consumption, if you've posted online about how you think this is wrong, it sort of also is <laughs> holding yourself to account to anyone who, um, you know, you've, you've put yourself, yourself publicly out there. So then you are maybe less likely to actually consume the product. Right. It's easy to post, certainly. Uh, it's easier than getting out and protesting a cause that you might believe in. But how about the celebrities like Billy Eichner, Christy Teigen, for example, led calls for boycotts of SoulCycle and Equinox. Those are both companies in part owned by Stephen Ross, a billionaire donator to Trump. What difference does it make when celebrities get on board with this kind of thing? Yeah, there's certainly some effect of how big your reach is because posting about a cause or about a protest is not the same when the average person does it versus someone with 10 million followers. Mm. So 
you know, if you have 10 million followers, you would clearly have a bigger impact through that post than just by changing your own personal behavior. Well, boycotts are, of course, not new. In the past, many have been over quality or sourcing or labor practices, although not exclusively. But now many seem to be connected to hot-button social issues or political figures in fashion and sports and movies and fast food, as we're seeing. So a shift in seeing things through a political lens. James, do you have a sense of what's changed? I think we're at a moment where people are starting to be more conscious that all of the money they spend is going to something and you are supporting things with the dollars that you spend, whether you like it or not. Um, And there's a lot more opportunity to hear from voices calling for protests now because of social media and to help highlight problems that for people who didn't have platforms to do that before. Mm, Well, consumption and it becomes a loyalty test in some way. I mean, people turned out to Chick-fil-A in droves as counter-protest to that original protest. There was a big Nike uh, pushback to Nike after partnering with Colin Kaepernick. Many companies used to try and stay out of politics. Kate, are you seeing a shift? Oh, I definitely think that that is a huge shift where it's become, as you said, with kind of Equinox, that's something where Equinox did not think or did not realize that that would be a political uh, battleground that they would enter into. Um, I think that, I mean, the Trump era, things are more politicized and um, involvement in politics is much more polarizing in many ways. I think that Chick-fil-A right now would like to think it's not a political uh, company. That's something that their communications team has told me many times Mm -hmm. is that they they take a political stance on anything. But I think that even by trying to be apolitical, that is seen by at least some consumers as a uh, distinct political choice. Well, James, I know you've been recently looking into the SoulCycle boycott, SoulCycle and Equinox, again, owned by the, in part by the same person, Stephen Ross. How does this stand out from other boycotts in the past? That was what really drew me to the story is there um, are, are data that people actually did move away from SoulCycle about a month later. So I I saw this this data the, the weekend after, and I thought, oh, that's probably just temporary. And then the trends kept up uh, a month later. So I reported that as a story that seems to be related to the fact that the product you're consuming there is very public. There's no membership you have to cancel. You have to sign up individually every, for every class. And a big part of that is SoulCycle encourages that it's it's not fitness, it's life, or that's maybe an Equinox saying, but it's more than a gym and it is part of your identity and you're supposed to Instagram it and wear the t-shirts and make it part of who you are. So they've invited you to take this on as part of your identity. So then when their identity takes on a new element, it's much more logical that you would also take that on. Yeah, so it's not as if everyone who goes through the drive through at Chick-fil-A is Instagramming themselves when they do it. Right. <laughs> Well, Delta ceased a partnership with the NRA credit card after the Parkland shooting. Corporate sponsors pull out advertising for Bill O'Reilly's show, Roseanne, Married with Children, and then they came back. Kate, what kind of calculations are there for companies in this era of highly politicized uh, rhetoric and sides? I mean, I think part of it is just how much they're making versus how much they think they're going to lose. As things become more politicized in certain decisions, uh, backlash, 
a lot of times there are things that they can just cut off pretty easily. The kind of NRA membership, as you were saying, that partnership is something that is probably not making them that much money. So it's pretty easy to stop doing. Um, something like Chick-fil-A, their past donations, they were able to kind of say, okay, as a company, we won't make these donations going forward. However, for the family that kind of owns Chick-fil-A, they haven't changed their practices because that's something that they aren't willing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of a calculus of figuring out how much could I lose and could this actually impact my reputation versus how much money have I invested in this? A lot of times they haven't invested that much money or aren't making that much money. Um, and that makes making the change a lot easier. Well, we have just a minute left. So I'm wondering about you, James, you mentioned that some of these just, you've got to sustain them. You've got to have a real voice, a centralized kind of group behind them. How do social movements shift over time or, or sometimes fall apart? I think people forget. We have a real quick news cycle, um, short attention spans. People say they don't remember things as, as long. We don't dwell on these news cycles so long. So what makes when media, when people on social media keep posting about something like SoulCycle, that is what keeps it in the front of people's consciousness and continues to give people pause about signing up or slightly devalue the product in a way that if the person was already sort of on the fence about choosing that as their particular workout, they might choose another workout. James Hamlin of the Atlantic, Kate Taylor, Business Insider. Stick with us. We're going to get back to the political power of our purchases and how boycotts may or may not impact companies. As we head into a short break, we're going to leave you with money by the Flying Lizards. Stay tuned. On Second Thought, we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we've been talking about the latest news of Chick-fil-A store and first store in the UK closing amid LGBT protests and broader conversation here about whether boycotts really change behavior or impact the bottom line. My guests, Kate Taylor from Business Insider and James Hamblin from The Atlantic. James, you were just talking about how people forget about these things. Uh, when Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, this was last June, Pride Month, tweeted about ordering from Chick-fil-A, he, he got a lot of backlash and later confessed that he would completely forgot about their background. So seven years is a long time to carry something on like that. And Kate, you've covered Chick-fil-A for the last four years and spoken with employees and customers. What stands out to you from those conversations? Have you spoken with any employees who identify as LGBT or Q? I have. And it's an interesting tightrope because a lot of people who are LGBTQ, um, who work for Chick-fil-A, it's something where they feel like the company respects them. They have told me that they've had good experiences there. Um, But at the same time, it's kind of difficult because um, the company doesn't really want to put these people in the spotlight because then it feels kind of like, oh, actually, it's like saying that you have a gay friend. Like, that is not going to make up for homophobic behavior. Um, So I think that Chick-fil-A is kind of in an awkward position where they – don't really know how to change their reputation when every couple of months a new kind of viral story about um, past donations, current donations, news stories about charities they've donated to in the past pops up on social media. Mm-hmm. Why do you think then Chick-fil-A inspires so much loyalty, both among its employees and its customers? I think that for people who work there, it's a good place to work. They kind of try to treat people who work there pretty well. 
uh, especially compared to some other fast food chains. They have a different model than a lot of major fast food franchises where each location is run by a single operator and that person is very much expected to be very involved in the community, very hands-on with the location, as opposed to somewhere like McDonald's or other major franchises where somebody who owns a franchise could have dozens or even hundreds of locations where it's not as hands-on. It's also kind of you go through a very long process to become involved in Chick-fil-A to become a franchisee. I talked to people who interviews took a year and a half. They were writing a ton of essays, doing a ton of interviews. Their entire family met with Chick-fil-A corporate before they were allowed to open Hmm. a location of their own. Well, Chick-fil-A has made conservative Christian values, which include being closed on Sundays, part of its brand. How does skipping a day of sales impact them financially? It's something because on the surface, it looks like they would be losing more than a billion dollars of sales a year. Um, for fast food chains, the weekend is huge, especially fast food chains like Chick-fil-A that have a lot of sales during breakfast. So in theory, this is a business decision that doesn't make sense. But in practice, it's really paid off for them. I think that it changes their reputation where it makes people see them as really committed to community, committed to um, kind of values and faith in some way that I think a lot of people like, but it also just practically drives an idea of scarcity. So you can't just say, oh, I'll get it tomorrow. Um, knowing that it's going to be closed one day of a week makes more urgency for people to visit Chick-fil-A when they have the idea to visit it. So it's something where it's based on values, but it's just a good business move, too. Well, Kate said that it hasn't made a difference, the boycotts beginning in 2012 for Chick-fil-A. In fact, I've read that it's the fastest growing fast food company in the world right now. So, James, you know, does it make a difference that people have launched this boycott? Some have continued it. Others, as we hear, have sort of dropped off. Is is it this just about really identity, or, or you, as you put it in your in your article in the Atlantic, virtue signaling? Which maybe we need a little explanation of what that is. That's um, not as straightforward as uh, I wish it were. I think um, people tend to mean virtue signaling that you're being disingenuous, that you are trying to project being virtuous as opposed to actually believing in what you're doing. I think a unique thing about the identity part of Soul Cycle is that with Chick-fil-A, they're based around a, a, a deeply held religious doctrine that has been around for a long time and is clear in what it stands for. And Soul Cycle has been depicted as a sort of um, marriage of these semi-spiritual ideas and sayings without a clear ideology. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting test for them is you didn't have that sort of allegiance that you might have doubling down in a way that you might for um, Christians who eat at uh, Chick-fil-A or who who might be more likely to eat at Chick-fil-A when they double down on certain views. And if your company doesn't have a clear ideological base, then it's easy to lose and harder to retain. Well, Chick-fil-A, of course, is fast food, inexpensive food, easy for families to pull up, and really good fast food, I would have to say. Uh, You write that consumer activism is, some may say consumer activism is a rich person's game. What do you mean by that? And what about this notion that many people don't have the luxury to stay informed or to shop elsewhere, choose another 
soul cycle, or, or I guess another version of spinning class. Yeah, I, I think there are ways in which everyone can participate, but it also sometimes takes money and time and schedule flexibility in order to take part in these uh, boycotts. And so people have an idea that if you can't fully commit or, or to total ideological purity, if you, you know, if you can't completely give up the thing that you're supposed to be boycotting, then why do it at all? And others suggest that a middle ground is very reasonable that just just do what you can and and that and no one is going to be perfect with their consumption habits but everyone is in a position position to do at least more than nothing and the people with the greatest resources and wealth are certainly in the position to have the greatest influence yeah well a lot of people believe that boycotts are effective methods of registering discontent you know as as the political gaps in our country widen and more and more people think, well, my wallet is a tool of my opinion, do you think these boycotts are going to increase? James, I'll put that to you first. Um, yes. I think there is just general cultural awareness at, at, that is being actually encouraged um, by many politicians of cre creating a two-side duality. You are on one side or another. Um pick your ground and stand by it. And as that polarization increases, people become more aware of who they believe is in that binary duality. In fact, it's much more complicated than that, but many people see it that way. And as long as you have prominent voices shaping, uh, framing the world in that way, it's an invitation for people to feel like they have to choose their team and fully commit to it. Okay, what do you think? What kind of decisions is that going to mean for companies in terms of marketing and branding? You know, who are they targeting? I think that James is exactly right. It, it's something that is being encouraged by politicians on both sides to kind of have people choose a side. I think that a lot of companies are going to try very, very hard to not take a stance on anything. Um, I think you're going to see less brands running ads on political shows of any kind. I think that in general, companies are going to try and very much play it safe. Um, and I think that that's going to be hard for them because they can kind of try and be as neutral and apolitical as they want. But I think right now when someone is um, seen as a symbol of something, then people will pick their sides whether or not the company is consciously choosing to portray that message. Kate Taylor, she covers restaurants, food, beverage, and retail for Business Insider. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And James Hamblin, he covers health and the health industry as staff writer for The Atlantic. James, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, to sum it all up, we're going to leave you with Freedom of Choice by Devo.